Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. So I'm here with Jack Bobo at the Seed and Chips Innovation Summit in Milan. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So before we get into what you're up to now, what did you have for breakfast? Well, I was eating in an Italian hotel, and so we had uh, bread and eggs and hams and prosciutto and, uh, of course, a cappuccino as well. Yeah, delicious. What would you say is your typical breakfast, though, when you're not traveling? Well, you know, I do often have a bagel or bagel and cream cheese or perhaps uh, bacon and eggs as well. Right. Very American. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or New York kind of diet. Yeah, exactly. And how would you describe your food preferences? Are you a vegetarian, vegan, gluten intolerant, anything like that? Um, I am sort of a diverse food eater. You know, I want to try a little bit of everything. Great. That's excellent. And so in 2019, my, uh, my goal for this year was to learn how to cook Indian food. So that's what I've been up to for the last few months. Oh, brilliant. How's that going? Well, I had to visit three grocery stores the first time to buy the 15 ingredients that I was going to need for Indian food. Uh, but after that, it, it's become smooth sailing. Fantastic. So you're mixing together all the different spices? Yeah. yeah. Oh, brilliant. That's great. Very, very cool. Well, um, and one thing I learned is that there's so much dairy in uh, Indian food. I just... Oh, really? I didn't understand. You have heavy cream and yogurt in almost every dish. Of course. Yeah. Yes. But I guess you wouldn't think that when you're actually eating it. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're here at the Innovation Summit, and um, you have been in this industry for a long time, most recently at Intrexon. Mm-hmm. Um, you now have your own consultancy. Can you just tell me a bit about that? Yes, it's called Futurity and I am working with food startups and organizations and established food brands to consider the future of food and what it means to them. Because what I found is that a lot of organizations and a lot of companies are very nervous about what all of these changes in our food mean to them and whether or not there is a place for them in the future of food. Interesting. Okay, well before we delve into that a little bit more, I'd love you to paint a picture of what you think the food system will look like in 2050. Uh, You could perhaps pick one or two things that will be different from today. Yeah, so I'm very optimistic and excited about what the world will look like in 2050. Uh, But I I think it it is helpful, though, to think about where we've come from in order to think about where we're going. And so today, a lot of people talk about the problems of agriculture in terms of its impact on land and water and forests. And all those things are true. But if we went back to 1980, what we would find is we used twice twice as much water to produce a kilogram of beef in 1980 as we do today. And so we emitted uh, 30 or 40% more greenhouse gases, 60% more erosion to produce that bushel of corn. So everything is better today than it was back then, but we're also producing a lot more food. And so the problems still exist. And so the What I see is that by 2050, we're gonna see continued improvements in productivity that are gonna reduce the impact of agriculture on the planet. So I think one thing we're gonna see is just an improvement in the quality of agriculture. Uh, The second thing is the diversity of of the options are gonna be available. And what we know for sure is that the hot things in 2050 are not gonna be things that are on our radar today. 
So, you know, just like, you know, 15 years ago, nobody had heard of quinoa, you know, that we're going to find that uh, what's hot and cool are things that we haven't even imagined yet. Okay. Well, maybe I'll do our hot and not round now, since you use that word. Um, so you tell me if you think these things are hot or not. Fermented foods. Uh, hot. Plant-based meat. Definitely hot. Cultured meat. Uh, not. Oh, why not? Well, because it's not there yet. Oh, okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but in your opinion, you think it will be hot? I by 2050, I think it will be hot. Crickets for food. <laughs> I think animals will be eating them, and people will not. <laughs> okay. What about robotic cafes? Oh, you know, I think that as robotics becomes more common, people want more personal interaction. So I think that it'll actually move in the other direction. Interesting, okay. So you like to have that service element when you go out for a meal or grab yep. a coffee. Yep. Okay. CBD infused food, <laughs> drinks, everything. I think not. Okay, why not? Well, I think that it's a fad. And I think that you know we will see that it will become part of culture in different ways, but right now we don't really know what it's delivering. And so once we understand what the benefits of the CBD or other uh, cannabinoids are, then I think that we might latch onto those individual ones, but I think that we need to learn a lot more about you know, what the virtues really are. And by 2050, we should know what's good and what's bad and what's helpful and what's not. Okay, interesting. So other generically, it won't be hot. Okay, I see what you're yeah. saying. Are there any other food trends that you think are fads? Uh, well, I think that a lot of, you know, gluten-free and uh, I, I would like to see a lot of the diets kind of disappear and we focus less on what people are counting calories and things like that and look more at behavioral interventions, you know, changing our food landscape so that people eat more nutritiously. We know more about food and nutrition than we ever have, and yet people are more obese than they've ever been. So it can't just be that more information is going to make us happier and healthier. Mm. So what, what can it be? What, what is the answer? Well, so I think that we need to reshape our environment so that you know, we think about food less, we consume food less. Uh, in 1960, the average dinner plate was seven to nine inches. Today it's 12 inches, and you know I've been to restaurants where it was a 15-inch plate. Yeah. And so you can have you know two or three times more food on a plate that's that large, and you can consume it without even know that you've eaten twice the calories you need. And so if we can turn it around so that restaurants are rewarded for right-sizing our plates instead of rewarding us, or we reward them for giving us too much food then I think that, you know, the restaurants can then become a partner in helping us to be healthier. Yeah, interesting. And I think it's a cultural thing as well. I don't know if you've been to Japan. Um, they have this saying, when you start a meal, you kind of cheers. And, and I can't remember what the saying is, but it basically means I'll eat until I'm nearly full. Yeah, 80%. You know, yeah. that, and the, the point is, I just want to be satisfied and right. you don't want to... Um, stuff your face. <laughs> well, so, so when, when I go out to dinner with my family, uh, there are four of us, and we only ever order three meals. And we have never regretted that fact at the end of the meal that we just didn't have enough. Almost every time we still take a, something home. Yeah, I think when my husband and I moved to the US, we definitely had to get used to the portion sizes. 
And in the beginning, we were ordering, you know, one one dish each. And then now I think there's a lot more sharing that goes on. Yeah. Interesting. So there's a sort of cultural element there as well. It's not just that the restaurants need to be implementing some of these things, but culturally we need to be changing how we see meal times. Yeah, I mean, we really need to go back to some of the traditions that we had before, that we would sit at a meal, you know, many meals today are eaten at the kitchen sink. They're not even sitting down. And so if we can slow down that process, then people can be more thoughtful about what they're eating. And it's also just because people are busy. I mean, there are reasons why we're doing it the way we are. But I think if we can find ways of reshaping our environment, we will just naturally uh, end up healthier. And so if it's, you know, there's a responsibility there on the restaurants you mentioned, but there's also probably a responsibility on the food companies and the agriculture companies. And I, I suppose some of them are going to be your clients. <laughs> so can you talk a bit about the work that you're doing with your clients? Yeah, well, so one thing about the responsibility of the companies, the food companies deliver probably tens of thousands of new uh, and innovative new products every year. And they continue to sell the ones that consumers buy. And, you know, in my experience, most, most food companies would be perfectly happy to only sell you healthy food if that's what you wanted to buy. And so, you know, we can blame food companies for not selling more healthy food, but if we don't choose to buy them, what would it matter if they were selling more healthy food? Mm -hmm. And so we need to figure out a way of convincing consumers to want healthier food and to be willing to buy it. So could that be what the responsibility of the food company is, then that, that convincing, convincing piece? I think it, it needs to be a relationship. So, you know, we shouldn't blame food companies for giving us sugary snacks when we buy sugary snacks. Um, but we, and we should find a way of rewarding them for giving us the things that we say we really want. And so I think it really needs to be more of an engagement. So I, that's where I think things like soda taxes are bad policy. Because as the people who drink soda don't like it and the people who make soda don't like it. And so it's, if you're going to have a policy that the people that are involved hate, it should really work. And at the moment, we have basically no evidence that sugar taxes um, make people healthier. Mm. And it's not really surprising because in terms of soda consumption, we're at a 30-year low. So if... We're at a 30-year low in soda consumption and a 30-year high in obesity. Obviously, soda is not the problem. Mm. It's a bit of the problem, but it clearly didn't create the problem. So if we spend our time and our energy and our money and our resources advocating for policies that cannot make us healthier, we're just uh, making it harder for us to actually do something that will make an impact. So tell me a bit about your work with your clients and, and what you focus on. Yeah, so it, it's really to help uh, organizations understand what are the food trends and what are the things that underlie those food trends. And so one of the things that I think about is when Amazon purchased Whole Foods, uh, in many ways that democratized organic food. It made available to the, the masses. Well, immediately people started saying, well, what's next? Beyond organic, regenerative agriculture, so as soon as it was democratized, people who shape policy and shape fashion in food wanted something else. Interesting. They, what kind of people? Well, I think people who have plenty of disposable income and they, they want something that's new, special, unique, different, exclusive. And democratized products, by definition, are not exclusive. 
And so I think we immediately saw this searching for what's gonna be next. And so when I'm talking to clients, I want them to understand that what consumers say they want and then what they do aren't always the same thing. Mm -hmm. That often people will make a decision and then they tell themselves a story about why they made that decision. And so, you know, that story could relate to sustainability, it could relate to health, it could relate to the environment, it could relate to equity or equality. Uh, but often we make the decision first and then we justify it second. And trying to understand what those trends mean um, can help you to get in front of it instead of getting run over by it. Right. So what are some of the new innovations that your clients are most concerned about or, you know, preparing themselves for? Yeah, so I think uh, not necessarily a client, but I think a lot of livestock companies or are, are, uh, organizations are concerned about plant-based and cell-based and what does it mean for them. And the first thing that I would tell those organizations is think about the fact that we need to double protein by 2050 to meet the needs of the growing planet. Well, if 100% of that doubling came from plant-based and cell-based, it would not cost them any current sales. They'd still have exactly the same livestock that they right. do today. Right, yeah, that's a really and good point. And the chances of cell-based and plant-based being as big as the entire livestock industry for the world today by 2050 in just 30 years is impossible. So it's not a question of whether or not they're going to exist or not exist in 2050. It's a question of will how much growth will they have? It might not be as much as they would have in the absence of plant-based and cell-based, but they absolutely are going to continue to grow through the next 30 years. And so part of it is just understanding you know, what that trend means, and then they can sort of relax a little bit and say, well, then how do we fit into these other trends instead of trying to block them or to denigrate each other? Uh, because you know, we do have real challenges that we all need to to address to make right. our system better. Yeah, and I think with the advent of these alternatives, there's a bit of, a bit of a, the alternatives are good and the existing livestock producers are bad. And, you know, it's very kind of black and white in a way. Right. Um, so I wonder, are you advising some of your clients, or if you had clients on the livestock side, would you advise them to try and find a way to kind of meet in the middle a little bit and, and you know, reduce that sort of livestock old-fashioned is bad type, type of reputation? Yeah, so I would, I would be... Uh, encouraging them to think about, you know, where where's the public going? They want to know about authenticity. They want to know the provenance of their food. Well, one of the things that technology like blockchain can deliver is a great deal of information about where an individual steak comes from. And so being able to trace that all the way back to a specific farm allows that farm to now get a premium for their product because it has that uh, traceability and its provenance. And so you can enhance consumer trust, you can get a premium for your product. So using a lot of the same technologies that the competition is using, uh, you know, could actually create new opportunities for the incumbent industries. Right, exactly. They can compete. Yes, and I was thinking about how um, there are some outdoor growers, you know, in California, who are now starting to look at doing some indoor farming as well. Yeah. So they're using the technologies of their potential competitors. Do you think we could see livestock farmers having cultured meat factories on their land? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if it'll be quite cell-based on their land, but you know, they may have a particular breed or cattle and then they end up licensing you know, that particular animal. Oh, great, you know, yeah. Because it's somehow special. 
Right, exactly. Fantastic. And they can have a piece of the action. Yeah, so collaboration actually will be quite key. It's something I've been hearing a lot of people talking about here, and I don't know if it's just a PR term that people love to say or if, or if it's real. And I do see amongst startups across the supply chain a lot of partnerships and a lot of collaboration, which I, I don't know if that's um, unique to food and agriculture, but there are some bigger challenges for growing technology startups, particularly on the farm tech side, that maybe collaboration is needed. What do you think? Well, I think a lot of collaboration is needed. A lot of the tech companies come from a tech background and they don't really have relationships with farmers. And so working with organizations who do have those relationships, one can give them access to clients, uh, but also it helps them to build relationships with the food sector. Uh, because these new technologies are part of the food system, they may think of themselves as challenging it, but you know they're still a part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Which technologies excite you the most? Well, you know, I'm not really one for choosing winners and losers. I, I'm very much an all of the above approach, that the diversity of our food system is the value of our food system. And that, you know, we should all sort of welcome and embrace that diversity. Okay. If you had a moonshot idea, what would it be? Something for the food system, for, for the better? Well, for me, it, it's about finding a way to communicate the importance of food and agriculture so that we can ensure that not just the people who have plenty of money have access, but also those who don't. I think a lot of the things that are being proposed could make food more expensive. And some people think our food is too cheap, but 40% of Americans at some point within the last year have not had as much money as they needed to buy the food they wanted. And so, you know, we often think of this as a problem in, in places in Asia and Africa, but, you know, the, the challenge of feeding uh, families is something that's real for, you know, people in America and Europe as well. So I just, I don't want them to be forgotten. Okay. And just to finish off, what advice would you give to a budding food tech or ag tech entrepreneur that perhaps has come from another industry or has just graduated? Well, the good news is food is sexy. And <laughs> yep. it's cool. And so there are opportunities today that just did not exist, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago. So if you have an idea and you're passionate about it, then look for mentors to help you bring it to fruition because there has never been a better time to make something happen. Are there any pitfalls that you think some entrepreneurs in this industry have fallen into? Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of them think of the current food system as evil and broken and that they're somehow going to fix it. And I understand all of the problems of the food system do exist, but you know we have the safest food system in the history of the world, and we have the fewest people in terms of percentage who are hungry in the history of the world. So that's a pretty good thing. And so the people that are going to help the new innovators succeed are the incumbents. They're, they're the food companies that exist today are their partners tomorrow. And so recognizing that as they scale, they're going to need access to the broader food community in order to access restaurants and grocery stores and distribution chains and, and all of those things that they need. So, you know, I think that they, they need to be thinking a little bit further ahead and looking for opportunities to partner, as you said, but also um, to learn from others. Great advice. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Bowa-Taylor. 
For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.